This is Tracy Davis, and with me is my partner and co-host, Tanya Esposito, and this is the Financial Law Forum. To commemorate Black History Month, we are thrilled and privileged to have with us Jeff Wynn. Jeff, is a, by day, is an Assistant Vice President and Senior Claims Director over at Chubb Group of Insurance Companies. By night, he's the book reviewer extraordinaire, I might add, for the New York Law Journal. He also happens to be the Vice Chair of the City Bar's Judiciary Committee and works alongside me in reviewing judges. But today, we are fortunate to have Jeff to talk to us about uh, his most recent book review. Jeff, how many uh, book reviews have you done? Uh, Tracy, I started uh, writing uh, book reviews uh, in the fall of uh, 2009. Um, My first one was um, about a biography of uh, uh, Jane Jacobs, the um, New York City reformer and um, um, great enemy of uh, Robert Moses. And uh, since then, I've done you know, approximately seven to eight uh, per year uh, over the the past 12 years, 12 plus years. So considerable uh, number of book reviews. And Jeff just recently wrote an eloquent review of the book titled, the the book review that's titled um, Expanding America's Sense of Its Own Past. Uh, in reviewing Nicole Hannah-Jones's book titled The 1619 Project, A New Vision, A New Origin Story, um, which places the consequences of slavery and the Blacks and Black Americans' contribution at the center of of this country's history. Um, So I thought it would be apropos uh, in uh, recognizing Black History Month that we sit down and talk to Jeff about the book, about his review, about the sense of where he thinks this book um, will hopefully move the needle forward. Um, So Jeff, Nicole Hannah-Jones has been highly controversial since her New York Times publication of the, the 1619 Project back in 2019. Um, And As I'm sure most of you know, that was a featured magazine article uh, intended to commemorate the 400th anniversary of the beginning of slavery in America. So what what made you decide um, to to do a review of of her book? Well, Tracy, this is um, uh, one of the more prominent uh, literary um, 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 efforts of our time. it recognizes and, and focuses on the fact that uh, the traditional origin story of uh, the United States, which, which uh, focuses around the colonists and, uh, a break from uh, Britain in, in 1776, um, is not the, um, the, the origin story uh, that is uh, shared by everybody uh, in America. And, um, you know, after the revolution, the, the United States adopted a pro-slavery constitution, which protected slavery in three different clauses, uh, and which ensured that the Southern states um, uh, dominated the government, uh, really until the, the national government, until the, the Civil War. And, um, you know, at, at the time of um, the adoption of the constitution, um, um, 19% of the country um, was um, consisted of, of black Americans. Um, and yet uh, slavery was adopted and protected uh, in, in the constitution. Thus the, the, um, the freedom uh, aspirations that were set forth in the declaration of independence really did not apply at all to um, nearly one fifth of the country and did not um, uh, apply you know, until after the Civil War. Um, and some would argue still do not apply uh, today. Um, so um, you know, as recognized by um, Frederick Douglass in his uh, famous uh, 1852 speech in Rochester, 
celebrating um, white Americans um, uh, recognition of the 4th of July, um, th there is no common uh, origin story between um, uh, black and white Americans. Um, uh, July 4th, 1776 um, is a celebration for white Americans you know, from British rule, but really not for black Americans. And um, the true origin story for black Americans is the introduction of slavery into the Virginia colony in, in 1619. So um, it's a very profound work. Uh, it's an interesting work because it's um, uh, principally written by journalists and uh, not by historians, um, but pulls together a, a tremendous number of um, you know, talented writers uh, and, and lawyers and, and journalists um, uh, and, and professors to, um, to tell the story. And um, it's really a fabulous piece of work and it will and should um, change the conversation going forward because um, the country really has not reconciled itself to um, what it did uh, to one fifth of the population for uh, 350 years. Um, if you think about it, uh, there have been uh, 16 generations um, since 1619. Um, if you count one generation for every 25 years and for 350 years or 14 of those 16 uh, generations, you have had uh, slavery and Jim Crow and segregation and discrimination. We've really only had two generations uh, since uh, the past 50 years where we've begun to reverse that, but um, it's incomplete. And, and this is a, um, an excellent book that explains all the reasons why it's incomplete and a real national conversation needs to take place um, in the years to come. Um, it's an important conversation to have because the country's changing. Um, you know, when I was um, born in 1960, 85% uh, of the country was, uh, was white. Um, after the adoption of the uh, Hart-Celler Act in 1965, Immigration Reform Act, which did away with um, the, um, the racist immigration laws that we had in, in place between 1824 and 1965, the country became opened up uh, to um, the, um, you know, many different folks from many different communities across the globe have come here and they have changed the nation uh, permanently. And, um, 20 years from now, for the first time in its history, this country is gonna be less than 50% white. And the country is gonna to have to learn how to get along and share power and share space in ways that um, it really hasn't had to face in the past or, or recognize. So this is an important book, I think, along the path to what's coming and what has to happen. Well, let's dig in a little bit because I'd like for um, our listeners to sort of understand what themes uh, run throughout um, and particularly how um, the goal of it uh, seems that the goal of the book is to explore um, how our, our democracy is, is built on both an ideal and a lie. You want to you want to just talk to us about that? Well, yes. Uh, in, in the Declaration of Independence, which uh, White Americans uh, traditionally look to as our um, origin story. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson wrote in the preamble that um, that all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable, inalienable rights, uh, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, uh, those inalienable rights uh, were not conferred on one fifth of the population of this country from its origin. And uh, arguably we're still being withheld, um, you know, 160 years later by the 1960s. Um, and um, there were three clauses in the constitution 
that were um, adopted uh, in the late 1780s, our first constitution, um, that protected slavery, um, that weren't done away with until the conclusion of the Civil War and the, the adoption of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Um, so, you know, the origin story is mixed. It was built on an ideal, which Jefferson penned in the preamble, but at the same time, it was, it was built on a lie. One, one fifth of the country uh, was deprived of these rights and uh, did not share um, in those aspirations. Uh, it was deprived of them. And in opening your review, you compared the theme of the 1619 Project with that poignant quote from James Baldwin from The Fire Next Time, in which Baldwin said that white Americans are still trapped in a history which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. What does that quote mean, particularly in the context of Hannah Jones's book? And, and how does it help? How does the book uh, advance this country's understanding of its history? Well, that particular essay from uh, James Baldwin's uh, um, 1963 book was um, from a, a letter that he wrote to uh, his nephew, which um, was uh, a warning uh, to him, his young nephew, about, um, you know, it's, it's been a hundred years since um, emancipation, but uh, we're still being subjugated. And he explains the the, the dangers that are ahead uh, for his nephew in life and how um, white people are, are going to um, uh, mistreat him and uh, deprive him of opportunities. Um, this came at a, you know, a very crucial time in our history, 1963. Um, uh, we had uh, some of the worst, um, um, you know, racial suppression in, in, in Alabama. Uh, in that year, um, and um, which caused President Kennedy to um, propose the Civil Rights Act, um, um, you know, in public accommodations um, that subsequently passed in, in 1964 after his death. Um, and um, <clears throat> it's interesting, um, it's a fabulous quote um, fr from one of America's premier writers and commentators uh, who was fearless, uh, who was trying to open the eyes of uh, white America uh, to the, the sins and the evils that still existed. And that, you know, the promises of 1863 and emancipation were still largely uh, unrealized. And, um, you know, it, it, uh, a couple of months after that book uh, was published in 1863, uh, or excuse me, 1963, um, um, Mr. Baldwin had a meeting uh, with other civil rights leaders and leading black Americans with Attorney General Robert um, Kennedy to discuss these issues in a famous meeting uh, at Kennedy's apartment in New York. And Kennedy, uh, who thought he was enlightened and thought he knew what the issues were, um, was um, um, confronted. And it was a, a seminal moment in his life. And um, uh, so now I think it's very appropriate for this very important book, uh, The 1619 Project, to look back to uh, Mr. Baldwin's um, seminal book, of, of 1963 and uh, explain that, you know, right there at the end of Jim Crow in the mid sixties, the problem um, that America faced is largely the, the, the problem that it still has, that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. There's a lot of attitudes that need to be um, uh, discussed and a lot of changes that, that need to be made. You know, I appreciate this discussion so much because I have two young girls who attend a school here. 
um, in Maryland where um, like many other institutions, there is an attempt from an academic perspective to approach um, questions of race and DEI in a more meaningful way and to have you know, more fulsome conversations around uh, what I personally believe are, um, is this country's history, right? And so um, to, to sort of dissect a lot of the things that are covered um, in this book and that you cover in the review. And um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a challenge in many ways to sort of bring people to the table, particularly parents where they may or may not have been exposed to these types of conversations in the past or, you know, have some form of a resistance to them because the narrative has been politicized one way or another. And I'm just curious to know your view on, you know, how best, if you have one, how best to take a book like the 1619 Project and, you know, incorporate it in a way or break it down in a way that can lead to um, meaningful conversations in an academic setting, but also, you know, at all grade levels, right? So my girls are eight and 11. They're not in high school, although my 11-year-old's pretty advanced and my eight-year-old's right behind her. But I guess my point is that these are the issues that I'm very focused on in the books that I read. And, you know, I try to bring my children into the fold, understanding that it's, it's a lot to sort of digest. But beyond that, I, I also want to understand how someone like me could be an active, involved member of the parent community um, at my children's school and, and maybe convey some of the points that you just so eloquently conveyed um, to parents who might not fully appreciate or understand what this book is about. Because I think there's a lot of confusion um, and, and to some extent, you know, un, undue criticisms um, of, what, of what this book is. And from my perspective, you know, it's, it's taking a look at history and, and sort of filling in gaps and, and sort of highlighting what are very critical pieces of this nation's history that have largely been uh, left out or ignored. Well, um, it'll be a different story in different parts of the country. Um, um, for example, there's a um, fabulous portion of this book uh, that discusses the um, 19th century sugar industry in Louisiana. Why is that significant today? That was the industry that put Louisiana on the map and created the most wealth uh, in the shortest amount of time in the history of Louisiana. It wasn't oil in the 20th century. It was the sugar industry there. And why is that significant? Uh, because uh, to grow that industry and to feed the, uh, the thirst of the, the, the public, both in the US and in foreign markets for sugar, um, you needed a plantation system and you needed, uh, <clears throat> you needed labor. And, um, and it was slave labor that built that wealth in Louisiana. Um, are those stories still told um, about, you know, what, what the origins of, of Louisiana's wealth was? Um, uh, who benefited from it? Who helped build it? Who was exploited? Um, those stories have, have largely been lost. And the importance of a curriculum, um, you know, based on portions of this book, um, uh, that, that needs to be remembered, it needs to be recognized. Also, you know, we've had a lot of freedom fighters in the history of this country, a lot of heroes. Um, and this might be more of a, a general national, not such a you know, location specific thing. Um, most of those through history, at least that I can remember when I was um, in my formative years were, were white folks. Um, in fact, you know, many of the most important freedom fighters who, who, who fought subjugation in the history of this country were, were black Americans. And that needs to be recognized. I think that could be done in a, um, an, an even handed way. Those stories need to be told 
uh, those folks need to be remembered. Um, you know, and I, I, when I was growing up, you know, I guess I, I, I recognized and, and heard about Frederick Douglass, you know, one of the greatest Americans of the 19th century. But I never heard anything about Harriet Tubman or Ida B. Wells, um, who was the fiercest uh, and most uh, courageous advocate um, against lynching in this country, you know, for almost 30 years, who traveled, you know, whose, whose newspaper in Memphis, Tennessee was, was burned. And, and she was driven out of the city um, uh, and had to flee to the North. Um, those folks and a lot of others that I haven't mentioned uh, need to be in the national conversation and then explain why. And that can happen organically, I, I think through curriculum. Um, uh, is this going to threaten some people? Is it going to, going to focus on dark spaces in our past? Uh, yes, um, those should not be forgotten. You know, I'm not an educator. I, I you know, we have professionals in this country who um, are educators. Um, I think they know how to do this. And in fact, this book has um, been turned into a curriculum or various curricula around the country. Um, I'm not familiar with that curriculum myself. Uh, I've not delved that deeply into it, but just the, 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 the number of individuals and the stories, um, that's important. Um, white Americans need to know about those, those folks as well. And, and you know, a lot of black Americans have forgotten about these important historical figures. And when you tell their stories, um, the fabric of the country, um, and how we got here and, and where we need to go is, um, it, it just needs to happen. Because like I said, the country is changing. Your, your daughters, if they're eight and 11, if you can um, think about what kind of world this country is gonna be 20 years from now, when they're young adults and they're starting to raise kids of their own, the country is going to be very different than it is today. It's gonna be, a lot different from when I was growing up in the 1960s and 70s, when, you know, uh, frankly, when you have one demographic group that, that has controlled the country, you know, since its inception and still has over 80% of the population, um, they really don't care about the other 20%. We don't have those choices now. And we're going to have to find ways to get along. And how do we do that? Well, understanding uh, each other's communities is uh, a really important step. Educating kids about these other stories and how um, this idea of um, stealing labor and opportunities uh, and wealth from generations of Black Americans has really led to a lot of the problems that we have today and that things have got to change and our attitudes about other communities have to change um, or else we're not gonna get along. This thing that we've known as America is, um, it's not going to succeed. Um, and it, it, it's what, you know, I think distressed me about the last administration that we had in Washington. Uh, it largely wanted to look back rather than look forward um, we can't go back to the 1950s. Uh, it, it's just uh, not a productive conversation for where this country is going. And um, finding ways to get along and share space and share power um, as this community is changing is, um, is important. Um, you know, I live in New York City. I think we're a little further along than many parts of the country in these conversations. You know, when I became a newly minted lawyer in the mid 1980s and started going to court, um, at that time, still most of the judges were white males. There were a few other types of folks that were on the bench, but not many. And um, uh, Tracy and I um, sit today on the New York uh, City uh, Bar Judiciary Committee, which 
you know, interviews and, and vets judicial candidates. And, um, you know, in the space of 35 years, uh, it has really changed. Um, I would estimate that, for example, at least half of the new judges now are women. A large number of, of the, uh, the candidates are either women of color or men of color and from a lot of different communities. I mean, um, communities that I didn't even know existed in New York in the mid eighties, such as, you know, in, in, in large numbers, South Asians are, are, are becoming members of the bench. And um, it's important for people in the community to um, see folks on the bench that look like them, that have names like them. It's important for them to see that in the prosecutor's offices, uh, in the political positions, in the police force. Um, our New York City police force has done a wonderful job since Mayor Dinkins's day in, um, in, in diversifying our, our force, which is uh, today, 30 years later, um, it's, it's much less white and it's much better educated than it was 30 years ago. That's been good for the city, um, uh, for, for all the different communities to see in these very public positions, uh, folks that look like them. Um, there, there's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. That hasn't, hasn't happened everywhere. It may not happen in some places, but um, um, you know, that's what this book is about. And it, it, it's about understanding uh, all of you know, your, your fellow groups. Um, and just to tie that into sort of what we're doing here with this podcast, Tracy and I have been focused for the most part on speaking with folks in the world of financial services and just having, you know, meaningful conversations about things like access to capital and communities of color, women, um, diverse persons who are engaged in the world of financial services in one way or another, either lending or running funds or, you know, making change internally, um, running, you know, DEI initiatives for large financial institutions. And it's just incredible how, when you think about how we got to where we are in the world generally, but certainly in specific industries, law, finance, beyond, you know, you kind of have to just extrapolate and look back to, um, to what got us here, right? And why are the numbers so painful in some of these industries? And why has it been so difficult? And um, financial services is definitely one where there have been some strides that have been made, particularly of late, but I think that there's just uh, a, a lot of work to do in that space. Um, so, you know, encouraging folks to think about the types of provocative, if you will, you know, concepts and issues that um, are brought forth in this book and, and just sort of, you know, the history of it all. I think it, it really helps to have a, a thoughtful approach to, like you said, um, understanding, right? And then coming together, but more importantly, developing some form of an actionable solution as opposed to just highlighting the issue, right? And then, and, and that's what it is. And we talk about it, we talk about it, but you know, nothing happens. And so I think um, having allies and having individuals like yourself um, who are, you know, white men and obviously <laughs> very educated on the subject and, and from a historical perspective and a personal perspective, I think that that really um, helps people like Tracy and I have these conversations and legitimize these issues. Well, as unquestionably. As the country changes demographically, if you think about any industry, um, finance including, um, um, you're gonna have to understand uh, each of these communities because they're gonna change and they're gonna become more important. Um, in the past, um, uh, the finance, finance interest industry may not have paid attention to many communities because um, um, you know, there wasn't much wealth there. There wasn't a lot of promise there. Uh, there were not uh, folks from that community who had um, um, made it in various posts um, in government and in, and in industry. 
Um, that has drastically changed in 30 years. It, 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 it seems slow to a lot of people, but it, during the, the, the life of, uh, you know, my working life started in the mid eighties, you know, and it's, um, I'm, I'm getting towards the back end of it now, I suppose, in my, in my early sixties, but it has drastically changed. It was all white male dominated pretty much in the mid eighties. And the conversation has changed. The first conversation was, um, was women. And it's moved on uh, to a much broader conversation and, and it's constantly evolved. And I can recall the law firm that I was employed in for 25 years, how our diversity initiatives uh, changed over time and how it evolved. And, um, um, if you want to thrive in, in, in the finance industry over the next 25 to 30 years, you've got to recognize these changes in the country. And you, you know, for example, um, something such as uh, advertisements. When I was a young man in my twenties, back in the 1980s, um, it was, you, you know, you had uh, white actors, in most advertisements. And, 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 and in the finance, finance industry, I would guess that it was uh, uh, pretty much ran the table. Now, um, you can't afford to do that. And why can't you afford to do that? It's because the country is changing and um, 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 there may have been one dominant culture back then, which was white America if that's possible to categorize them all in one. Um, you can't do that in 2022. The country has changed so much. And I, and I sometimes when I watch television and I just watch who the actors are in the advertisements and in the finance industry, um, that's drastically changed. So I think, you know, the, the finance industry it's pretty smart. It's usually in the forefront. Um, and I, I think it's going to adapt well. And, um, you know, and it has the power to force a lot of its customers or persuade a lot of its customers to get with the program, not only through its own acts, uh, but um, the advice that it, it provides. And, um, you know, you're, you, um, 20 years from now, when you're, um, Ms. Esposito, when your daughters are in their 20s and uh, this country is uh, less than 50% white, um, we will look back to 2022 and, and um, uh, recognize how, how much has changed. And a lot of the things um, that, you, that, that you advocate for, that Ms. Davis has advocated for, you just have to keep doing it every day. You, you, you have to speak up, uh, you have to be persistent, and um, uh, it will happen. I've, I've seen it over the past 30 years. T to me, it's been a big change. Um, maybe to a lot of others, it's not enough, but um, there has been, um, there's a recognition now that other communities exist and that they are relevant in this country. And, um, so I, I, um, I see a lot of hopeful things, but you know, a lot of painful and, and meaningful conversations have to, to still take place. And, and, and a lot of them, go ahead, yeah. Secretary. Following up on that, um, because I, I agree with you. I mean, I'm not too far behind you. And I, and I do recognize that much has changed um, in the last, you know, since the early nineties um, and, I can recall where to even have this kind of conversation was taboo, was um, lacking, was perceived to lack merit because there was no such thing as discrimination. It was an even playing field and um, you got what you got because of your own, you know, determination and wit. Um, I think one thing that it would be interesting to hear from your perspective because 
it wasn't often talked about. It wasn't generally widely educated to um, talk about where those systemic barriers might exist in um, affording Black Americans opportunities. Um, you talked in your book, a uh, review about how uh, a 1619 uh, book identified um, areas where those barriers exist in housing, in the criminal justice system. And this is not all that um, uh, unfamiliar, I think, to the vast majority of the population. Um, you're a student of history. Were there any uh, barriers that were identified in the book that you found particularly surprising or noteworthy? Because I still think there needs to be a discussion around that in order for us to know where to target our efforts, what we need to do to advance the dialogue, how we need to root out some of these barriers that exist um, to advancement to opportunities. But I would be interested to hear whether or not there was anything in the, um, the book itself that you found particularly surprising. Well, not surprising, um, uh, Tracy, but um, Miss Hannah Jones uh, brings a lot to the table. She's a very astute individual. Um, uh, however, I consider um, the, um, the smartest person in the room in this book to be um, um, Brian Stevenson, who is um, um, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative down in, in Alabama. He is a um, the author of um, uh, Just Mercy, uh, which was published three or four years ago, which I also uh, reviewed for the New York Law Journal when it came out. Uh, he, he has spent uh, his career um, after attending Harvard Law School um, um, in the South, um, uh, trying to exonerate um, folks who sit on death row in Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, uh, Georgia. And um, he talks about the, the uh, in his chapter in this book, the direct connection between the linkages between slavery, Jim Crow, you know, um, the terrorism that Jim Crow uh, wreaked on, on um, um, one fifth of the population of this country. Um, um, poverty and the mass incarceration that we have today um, in a very um, persuasive narrative. And, um, you know, it's not something that a lot of us think about. And, um, you know, he's written and, and, and discussed this, you know, far and wide. Um, and it, the, the eight or nine page chapter that he has in this book, I, I think is very significant. And it calls for a, a national conversation, much like they had in Germany after 1945, much like they had in South Africa after uh, you know, apartheid uh, ended. Um, we have put off those conversations in this country. Um, there have been half measures or one quarter measures to try to deal uh, with these historical wrongs. And, um, I um, uh, looking to, through the long uh, arc of history, as as described, you know, by Mr. Stevenson, um, I think is persuasive, and it opened my eyes. Uh, I, I think, um, and 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 how do we address that practically now? Well, it would be nice if we could get folks in Washington in, in Congress to. Um, to face this issue, much like you know they did in the 1980s with Japanese Americans and their internment in in, in World War II, um, is that going to happen anytime soon? I'm I'm not holding my breath. There's too much polarization. Um, but look, looking at our public officials, I think in a in a place like New York, um, we have uh, um, a new mayor who's an African-American male uh, in Manhattan, we have a new district attorney, Mr. Bragg, who are trying to change these conversations and how we address um, uh, public safety issues. And, um, you know, throwing a lot of people into jail 
is is not the answer. Hmm. There are other answers, and hmm. um, uh, and th those those gentlemen are in power now, and they have uh, you know they're a big part of the conversation. They're not the only persons uh, conversing. They're pushed back to some of their narratives, but um, they are in power. So. Um, you know, and it, it, you have that aspect to it, Tracy. And also, I think what's important is, you know, I um, we 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 both have a um, uh, a mutual friend, our, our um, late Judge uh, Sheila Abdusalam, who um, was a great uh, mentor to me over the years. I know she was to you, and opened my eyes to a few things, and um, learned me some of her experience, as Yogi Berra would say, and. Um, I remember she used a phrase one time with me and it's never left me. And it was, we're here and we're going to be who we are. And, um, you know, white Americans have got to recognize that. Not everybody's gonna be like us and act like us. And um, you're gonna have to make accommodations and you're gonna have to out of respect recognize that things are going to have to get done in the future in different ways. And she um, was very wise. And, um, you know, I'm, that was a short phrase. Uh, it may not mean much to uh, some people, but I think I know what it meant. And it's, it's important. Um, so it's a long-winded way, hopefully, of answering your question. And I, um, I've, I've got hope for the future because we're, I think we're electing some good people um, who know how to have these conversations and they know how to work together with other communities to have this conversation and, and move things forward. Um, I, I don't want us to um, run out of time without asking you to talk about uh, these memory laws that are sweeping the country, 21 states in all that have adopted them. You just want, if you would, just tell us a little bit about them and um, what implications do you see arise as a result of this counter movement? Well, it, it's interesting, Tracy, the, um, the earliest memory laws uh, in this country were focused on the Holocaust and were, you know, focused on um, remembering the Holocaust um, in, a, in a truthful way and it targeted uh, Holocaust uh, deniers to preserve the memory so that people did not forget. Um, well, it's, it's evolved into something a little bit more nefarious now. And, um, you know, there are folks in this country who feel threatened um, uh, by, you know, discussions such as the 1619 Project. Um, they believe that, um, you know, patriotism um, uh, means uh, one thing and a certain thing. That, that's that what I learned in school many years ago. And these other folks are really not a material, uh, these other types of folks are not a material part of the, the national conversation. And, um, you know, and, and some of them have, have focused directly on this book. Uh, they don't like what's discussed in it. They don't like the fact that, that, that the book um, brings out truths about some of, for example, Abraham Lincoln's private views that are well documented about, you know, that he held racist views himself, even though he thought slavery was immoral and should be done away with. Um, there are people who feel threatened by that. And so they want to pass laws which, um, you know, protect uh, certain memories and also to protect white folks from feeling, feeling guilt about what's happened in the past in this country. Uh, it's a sensitive issue um, in, in many uh, red states around the country. These are being passed um, and, you know, it's primarily focused on um, 
school age uh, children, but they, they also wanna institute it and then enforce it at the university level. And um, it's just a lot of mind washing. It's, it's dangerous. Um, I've got confidence that um, free speech and uh, independence of, uh, of thought advocates um, at the university levels will push back and that this will be a flavor of the month um, that will pass. Um, it's, uh, but it is unfortunate and, you know, it, 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 it has proven to be a vote getter. You know, for example, in the latest Virginia um, uh, gubernatorial race, uh, this was a huge issue and it's going to be a huge issue this fall in the midterms. The Republicans um, are using this narrative to scare a lot of people and um, convince them, you know, the, 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 uh, the uncommitteds, the uh, independents to uh, come into their camp. And um, uh, my hope is that it'll pass and that the, the truth will come out because you know something, the, uh, the non-white communities in this country are, are not going away. <laughs> they are here and they are going to be heard and um, the voices are going to get louder and more persistent uh, over time. And, um, but it is an unfortunate thing. And do you see us um, creating a we origin story through um, what I think um, is a move towards the recognition that the lost opportunities um, endured by communities of color um, have to be redressed? Do you see us hopefully creating almost a we story by um, um, a, what I thought was really important point in your review, uh, the focus on um, the, uh, the Black community definitely having endured um, and overcome the fight to uh, be their rights to be acknowledged and um, to, to have that almost as, um, I guess, uh, an example of the uh, success of the American dream, American story. I mean, isn't there some we origin story in that message? Well, I think, I think it has to happen. I think it's, it, it's going to happen, uh, Tracy. It's not going to happen as quickly as, as a lot of us uh, think that it should. But again, I think it's going to be driven by demographics. Uh, and um, it, it'll be long deferred, but it, it, it's going to happen. Uh, you know, the traditional problem we have at the federal government level uh, in this country is, you, you know, you, if you want to pass big change, big social change, it generally has to have a universalist approach. Um, big change that's focused on benefiting uh, what are perceived to be benefiting just one community is, is tough to adopt. And, you know, if you look, for example, at President Obama, this is the approach that he took. Um, you know, his universalist policies to healthcare. You know, this is going to raise um, uh, the level of healthcare for a lot of Americans, just not one or two communities. Um, we, you know, there's an aspect to this, this, this common origin story that's gonna have to surpass what we perceive it to be today, and it's going to have to have a universalist approach, I think. We're all going to have to recognize why this is in our best interest to listen to each other and respect each other. And um, um, again, I, I think um, the, as the demographics of the country change, if we're all going to get along and this place is going to prosper, that's going to have to happen. And we're, we're various communities will see this is a good thing and this has to happen. And um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful about it. Um, will, I, will I truly see it in my lifetime? I'm not that confident that I will because you know, I'm 61 years old. Uh, I'm, I'm more confident about Miss Esposito's uh, children's generation. And if we teach them well, 
um, they will be prepared for this. You know, I have to say that I, I am on many days discouraged and frustrated in my own inability to navigate some of these conversations in a way that's productive. I'm trying really hard to become, um, you know, more of an active listener and, and to sort of engage in ways that is uh, useful for the conversation as opposed to um, what might have been, you know, just my sort of gut reaction to some, um, someone who does not necessarily see the world the way I do, or is not willing to engage, you know, in, or, or recognize um, historical facts, right? And, and sort of wants to um, debate. <laughs> what, I, what I see is plainly, you know, clear as day, not debatable. But I say that just to say that I, I see my daughters um, at a very young age able to have these conversations using words that when I was their age, I don't even think I had in my arsenal and my vocabulary and they feel comfortable having these conversations. And they also feel very comfortable um, identifying things that, or, or you know, comments or actions that um, they perceive as not right, as you know, just not the way to behave as a good, human being and a good person. And so I'm very encouraged by that. And, um, you know, I see that in their friend groups and I see, um, I, I just see a different view of the world and, and of a lot of these issues. And so that, that is very encouraging to me. Well, the conversations, Ms. Esposito, that you have with your daughters and the things that you do to prepare them for, um, uh, the world that's going to uh, exist uh, during their working lifetimes is the most important thing that you can do. It, it's not convincing a neighbor or somebody from, uh, from school um, that their, their views are not, you know, enlightened or up to date or proper. Um, you, you know, raising and, and, and um, uh, molding um, responsible young women who are going to be able to navigate in this world and um, uh, thrive in it is, is um, uh, the most important thing that we, we all can do. And, um, you know, this book uh, that we've uh, um, come here today to discuss is, is, there's a lot of stories and discussions in there that um, can be a part of it. You know, there, for example, are uh, juvenile biographies of a lot of these female characters that you can go to, you can order from, you know, Barnes and Noble. And, you know, I did this with my own son when he was, he's 27 now, but um, I would get him these books. And um, I, um, I used to bribe him a little bit. You read this book and you write me a two page report. He used to, he used to um, I used to pay him $10. And boy, that kid liked to earn money. So um, he learned about a lot of these folks early on. And I cherry cherry picked important, you know, historical figures um, for him to read about. And you know, a lot of it sunk in. And um, he he went to a uh, my son went to a New York City public high school, uh, Bard High School, early college, which is an interesting concept of a, of a high school. It is a um, it's 125 kids per class. You have to test to get in. And um, it's considered to be one of the more prestigious high schools. Um, they don't build a class like they do at Stuyvesant High School, which is test score only. They build each class like they do a small uh, prestigious liberal arts college. And um, so they had kids from every community this was a school that had 6,000 applicants per year for 125 seats. And uh, my son didn't get in. Towards the end of the summer, uh, right before ninth grade, they called and they said, we have a spot for you. And uh, why? They had, um, they didn't have enough white males in the class. So, you know, he was prepared at that age to, knew what affirmative action was about. 
And I said, you know, son, you know, you're a beneficiary of this. This may not happen to you many times in your life, but you have to recognize what's happening. They had too many, uh, particularly, they had too many girls of color that were highly credentialed in, in the applicant pool this year. And you are getting one of their spots because they felt like they need, you know, in curating the class, they wanted kids from all the communities and they didn't have enough from yours. And um, he was ready for that conversation, I think in ninth grade and recognized it. And, um, you know, when he got to the school, you know, I think he did pretty well. Um, he was the first uh, white, um, white kid on the uh, basketball team in the nine year history of the school. And I thought he did pretty well. He fit in pretty well. Um, I was very proud of him. So thinking about your daughters, uh, Ms. Esposito, by the time they get to high school, you know, these, these perilous years, um, are they gonna be ready for th those types of um, experiences? And, and to, you know, um, coexist with others, uh, you know, in a, um, in, 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 in that type of um, environment. Uh, I hope they do. Yeah. I, I, was very, I was very proud. It was mostly my wife's doing, you know, it wasn't mine, but um, I was very proud. And, uh, and this is the world that, you know, your, your kids are, 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 are gonna be, gonna live in. And yeah, that's, um, that's incredible. And I, thank you for sharing that. And I, I understand how proud you must be. And, you know, I live in, so I'm from Connecticut and I lived in Washington since I landed here for college in 1992. Um, so I'm more of a Washingtonian than I am a tri-stater at this point. But um, you know, I lived in, in the district proper most of my time here and my children attended DC public schools, um, including the early childhood education programs that we have here, which are majority um, students of color and from other communities and you know took away from that um, a, a, you know a very sort of different outlook I think than a lot of their current classmates and colleagues um, and you know that's the most invaluable piece I think of what they will take away from their early early education um, and you know I, I'm a big fan of um, no bubbles, right? A lot of people, I live in Montgomery County now. There's a lot of bubbles here in Montgomery County, Maryland. And um, I don't do bubbles. So trying really hard to keep them grounded. And they're, they're at a private Catholic um, Sacred Heart school now that, um, you know, I have very strong feelings about and support very much. Um, but, you know, there, if you don't make affirmative steps to ensure uh, that your kids don't, exist in that bubble, it's easy for that to happen. And so um, I think it's incumbent upon all parents who have, you know, the tools at, at their fingers and have the ability to make sure that, you know, kids, their kids are exposed, particularly in a place like Washington, where we've got, you know, essentially two different Washingtons coexisting within a number of miles here. So um, I appreciate everything you said and what a great experience, right? To be able to have that conversation and for him to sort of, you know, live that out and be able to appreciate at the moment what was happening. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, it's interesting, Ms. Esposito, my um, son went to a Catholic school through eighth grade and um, this um, high school that I mentioned to you, board high school, early college was very rigorous. You know, they really taught critical thinking there and, um, we, um, we found that the education that he uh, got up through eighth grade, um, you know, was uh, perhaps not the, um, the, the best one to get him prepared for this type of high school. Uh, they taught physics, for example, in ninth grade. And, you know, his, his ability at that point for abstract thinking, I think was maybe under, un, 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 underdeveloped because uh, he didn't do well in the course, but, um, you know, having conversations with your kids and um, making sure that um, that you don't live in that in that bubble is uh, is pretty important. So it sounds like you're doing a good job. Um, 
Um, raising daughters is a little, a little tougher than sons, uh, I think. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, so my wife tells me, you know, my wife did 99% of the work. So, um, I always attribute all of my son's success to her. Smart man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I know both your wife and your son, and I know you fairly well. And, uh, I am really very grateful and I'm sure both of them are as well for you being so conscientious about the world that we're in, the state that we're in, and moving the conversation forward. Well, thank so, you. Thank, thank, thank you, Jeff. We do very much appreciate your willingness to come on today and, and talk to us about this. So, well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Ms. Esposito. Um, and good luck. All right, then. Have a good day. Please join Tanya and I for our next episode of the Financial Law Forum, where we will explore another hot topic on the intersection of financial services, the law, and equal access to capital and opportunity. Thank you.